If you grab your Bibles or if you have those Matthew journals, we're in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 today and then jump into chapter 4 next week. Last week, if you weren't here, the title of the message is The King is Coming. And when we looked at John the Baptist's message, all that he said this, this was the heartbeat of his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent means to turn. It's a 180 degree turn. It's not just to believe in something. It's like, oh, I believe in God and that's fine. Or I was raised Christian, so therefore I'm Christian. That's not what it is. The invitation of the king is to follow him. So can you imagine? I'm standing before an earthly king and what an honor. He, come, he brings me forward. He says, I want to invite you into my cabinet or into my administration or whatever it is that you want to call them. You're part of the knights of the round table. And I say, I'm in, but I never show up. Nothing changes. I don't really act like a knight. I just live my own way. Am I really, have I really ac- accepted the invitation of the king? And yet I wonder how many, not wonder, I guarantee there are so many people in the States, who call themselves followers of Jesus because it's cultural, because they were raised that way. Never a true surrendering of their lives to Jesus, not a repentance from sin and turning to Christ, but really more of a, hey, Jesus, come closer to where I am and face sin a little bit with me so I can continue to do the things that I prefer rather than what it is that your word says that says this is requirement for calling yourself a follower of Jesus. Really, there's really one thing, one thing that's necessary to be a follower, and that's to follow. And I can't follow Jesus if I'm not faced, I'm not facing toward him. And so when we hear that the king is coming, and the message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how this this fact that Jesus came, and he ushered in the kingdom of heaven, and you said, I don't see it all yet. Yet, guys, the fruition of it. He is coming a second time. And I want to make sure you're encouraged by that. For those of you who got hit with the news this week that you never thought you would hear, the king is coming back. For those who have faced things for so long, you're like, I don't know how much longer I can deal with this or face this. Let me remind you, the king is coming back. Guys, when we look at the state of our world or our nation or our families or our our neighborhoods, we sit and go, God, okay, so it just seems like things are unraveling. I just want to encourage you. Jesus is coming back one day. Our king is coming back. Guys, that brings us back to this one word that's so necessary. It's called hope. As you realize what you can do when you have hope, you can always take one more step, right? If you have this idea, one more step gets me closer to where it is that I'm supposed to be. Like what if for those who have been facing that thing for such a long time, what if one more step gets you through it and done with it? That's hope. Like maybe this is it. You say, well, maybe it isn't. Let's get out of the pessimism and let's get into the optimism of the fact that the king has come once, he's coming again, and until that day, the Holy Spirit has been given to us to lead, to guide, to counsel, to convict, to encourage, to help us. We're not left alone. And so we continue to walk with him and he with us. And because he is sovereign, because he is sovereign, there is always hope. We can continue to say, well, my personality is more this than that. 
Some say I'm more optimistic. Some say I'm more pessimistic. And I don't think that we should continue to just go, well, this is just who I am. What if we sit and go, okay, God, you're sovereign. You're sovereign. I know for me, sometimes that little gray cloud will go over my head. It's like, this isn't going to turn out well. God, prepare me for the battle. And it never really turns into the battle that I thought. But what if I sit and go, you know what, God, this may be the worst battle I've ever faced, but... Jesus, you came once and you're coming back and you're sovereign and you're with me. And until that day, I see you and you make it obvious that you've returned. Because you're sovereign in control, I have hope. And so we jump into chapter three, verse 13. And there's two key parts as we break down this passage into two key parts. The first is this, Jesus' identification. Look what happens in verse 13. Of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus, I'm sorry, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and, you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Guys, I love Jesus for a lot of reasons. Here's one of the reasons. John, it made no sense to him. John is doing, a, he's, he's, he's doing these baptisms of repentance. So he's calling all the people of Israel out. And everyone else around the people of Israel out. We're all in sin and you need to repent. So John's baptism is different than the baptisms that we have today. The purpose behind it was different. For there it was like, it's this baptism of repentance. I need to be washed from my sins. So here comes Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus never sinned. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And so why is he he going to get baptized? I mean, why go through it? And so when he comes to John, he's like, I want you to baptize me. John's like, what am I gonna do? I mean, you're gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, we looked at that last week. So what am I gonna do for you? You're the Messiah. I mean, what am I gonna do? And I love Jesus' response. He said, verse 10, let it be so now. He said, I don't think he's talking about immediately. He's like, just shut up and do it. No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this. Hey, John, I know this makes no sense. Just do it. And I think he says the same thing to us. Hey, I know this makes no sense. Just do it. Trust me. Just do it. He did the same thing with Peter. Remember, I know there's times we sit and go, I just don't know why God would call me to do something that seems so out of out of the norm. But he does it. Guys, he calls us into those things. And so when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and he comes along Peter in John chapter 13, and Peter looks at him and says, no, 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 you're not gonna wash my feet. No, 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 you don't get to do this. And Jesus goes, I know this doesn't make sense to you. Just trust me, this is how it has to be. He does it even there. And then Peter goes, no, you're not going to do this. And then Jesus says, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. And you're like, oh, crud, Jesus just got mad. Like the first time, he's like, I know you don't get this. I know you don't get this, just trust me. No, it's not gonna happen. Then you have no part with me. And then what's, what's Peter say? Give me a bath. Wash my feet, my head, my body. Boom, I'll take off the room. Whatever you want, just wash me. He's like, ah, the feet will be fine. The feet are fine. Why would he do it? So the first time he says, I know you don't understand this, trust me. Guys, he says the same thing to us. I know you don't understand this right now, trust me. And then when we say, no, it won't be like that because it doesn't make sense to me, that's when Jesus gets a little bit more forceful. 
I'm telling you, this is how it has to be. I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm telling you, this is how it is. There are times where Jesus has to do that. And when he does, our response should be, then whatever you want. Maybe we do that the first time and don't have to get into the second part of the conversation. So here, John's like, I don't understand. Why would I baptize you? He goes, yeah, I know this doesn't make sense. Just do this now. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says, then he consented. So why would Jesus get baptized? The first reason is this, I think. First is this, Jesus' baptism is an identification with sinners. Realize it's not, him, it's not him confessing sin, but he's identifying with us, with us as sinners. Realize, baptism was not something that a Jewish person ever did. We can read this and go, oh, they probably baptized each other all the time. Guys, this was unheard of. Gentiles who weren't Jewish, they, if, they were gonna, if they wanted to come in and follow Yahweh, they want to follow God, then they would have to be baptized. But the Jewish people would never have to be. Why? Because they were children of Abraham. And therefore, because you're children of Abraham, you're automatically in. Guys, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that was the mindset. Then John comes along and says, every single person needs to repent from sin. And so here comes Jesus, and he shows up, hey, I want you to baptize me. He knows he hasn't sinned, but he identifies with us as sinners. William Barclay says this, the Jews knew and used baptism, but only for converts who came into Judaism from some other faith. It was natural that sin-stained, polluted converts should be baptized, but the Jews had never conceived that they, the chosen people, children of Abraham, assured of God's salvation, could ever need baptism. So here, the first time in history, is a Jewish man who's the Messiah coming and saying, baptize me, so why would he do it? And like I said, in the first one, I think so Jesus could identify with us. Guys, his identity is not sinner, but he gets us. He's compassionate with us because he understands us. He sympathizes, he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows how hard this is, but he identifies himself with us. Look at Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Speaking of Jesus, six, 700 years before Jesus shows up and was numbered with transgressors, you said, well, that's when he's up on the cross. Absolutely. But isn't it amazing that here comes Jesus going, I will be identified with those whom I came for. From the very beginning. Guys, for some 30 years, here's Jesus just living life. He, he grows up in this family. His dad dies some point after he's 12, before he's 30. He's experienced loss. He's taken over the family business. He's taken over that role of leader in his home. He's trying to provide and care for his family. And now everything's going to change. Why? Because it's now time for him to draw a line in the sand and look at the enemy and go, I'm declaring war on death and sin. I want to make sure that those that I came for know that I identify with them even though he's not like us. And he humbled himself. From the very beginning, he never sinned, but he did everything that he could, he could do to identify with us. And so Jesus was baptized. And we see Jesus not just associate with sinners who be identified in the beginning here, we also see it in his ministry. In Luke chapter 15, if you've been brought up in the church, maybe you've heard the, this, this phrase, the prodigal son. 
You've heard that, that, that passage about the prodigal son. It's found in the second half of Luke chapter 15. But in the very beginning, we see why it is that Jesus actually, he, he told that story. And it's the first two verses of Luke 15. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, drawing near to Jesus. Remember we talked about tax collectors before? They were hated by everyone. I mean, they were the lowest of the low. No one, no one could stand them. And isn't it amazing that Jesus, when he picks his 12 apostles, he picks one, he picks Matthew, who was a tax collector before he invited him. Guys, here's the other thing. Jesus makes it super interesting. He picks a tax collector who's a Jewish man working for the Roman government, taking taxes from his own people, and then he picks Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, in any other circumstance, would look at Matthew and find a way to murder him and think that he's doing a service to God. And here comes Jesus going, I want to make this interesting. I want to take the tax collector, and I want to take the, I want to take the zealot, and we're going to see what happens. It's like a grudge match. Like maybe just I'm going to take the Republican and the Democrat and stick them right there and make you have to face one another and see what happens. He would never. Isn't it amazing that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him? Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. They wanted to be around him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the ones who had God all figured out, the legalists, this is what they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? Guys, to, to eat a meal in that day, I've brought this up many times, but for those that haven't been part of that, to eat a meal with someone it wasn't just like, hey, let's go do something. It wasn't just like a business transaction. Hey, we're making a business deal. It wasn't just, hey, we're, we kind of like each other. I wonder who's going to pay. Do I have to offer? If I offer to I really want them to pay, but I, wanna, I don't want to seem cheap, so I'm going to offer at least twice, and hopefully they'll go a third time. Don't judge me, because that's what we all do. So it's like, well, we're going to do that. I don't really like them, but they're paying for lunch. No, no, no. To eat with someone in that day means I receive you as my friend. Like, I actually love you. It was so different. And here's the reputation that Jesus has. Sinners ate with him, and he ate with them. Sinners ate with Jesus, and Jesus like, let's chill out, let's get some barbecue. And the worst of the worst, yeah, we're gonna hang out. They went to Jesus. The word receive there means to accept, to welcome, to receive. Jesus, think about it. The thing that they had against Jesus is that he welcomed sinners. And for that, I am so thankful because every single one of us need to say the same thing to Jesus. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you came and thank you that you receive sinners like me. Followers of Jesus, when we forget our sin and we just live in the fact of redemption, which is beautiful, it's true, but we forget that we came from being sinners and that God did his transformative work to call us saints, to make us holy in the sight of God, when we forget where we came from, it's then that we begin to move into the realm and the world of the Pharisee and the scribe. And we could actually look at Jesus and say, how dare you? How could you ever relate with or be around with those sinners? And isn't it amazing that the sinners and the quote-unquote worst, worst of society in that day they all drew near to him. I guess the question for us is, how do we do at receiving sinners and are they wanting to be around us for a meal? 
Guys, I got to be honest, as a pastor, I mean, it's like everyone I work with are followers of Jesus. They better be, but we're all followers of Jesus. It's not like, hey, go to work and reach someone to for the Lord. I'm like, they all know the Lord. They, they love him better than I do. So I'm like, well, they're teaching me. And, but it's like for those of you that don't have that and you're in a workplace, and not everyone there loves the Lord, you find yourself isolating rather than welcoming. And then for me, guys, I gotta be more intentional. And the introvert in me wants to push against that. I like to be alone. I like to sit and go, it's my turn. I'm gonna read. No one talked to me. No one talked to me. No one. Kelly, I love you. I don't talk to me right now. I'm in, I'm in my own little world. I can continue to say that and think that I'm actually being obedient to God because I'm getting alone to be healthy and all the while disobey God and what he's actually called me to do. So I was, I was telling our D, my, D, my D group this morning, I said, guys, for the last couple of weeks, I felt a little bit lazy in being intentional and in starting conversations about Jesus with people. Like I just kind of found myself kind of retreating back and I don't want to do that. I said, so can we pray? Can we pray for that? Like I want to be intentional with that again. And no joke, then as I left, um, the same person who always takes our money because of the breakfast, and I'm eating healthy, don't look at me like that. So I'm there giving the money, and I saw her name tag. I've never seen her name tag before, and I thought, well, I just prayed. Can't just pray and wait for, oh, there it is. There's the boldness. I felt it. There it is. It's not like that. It's like, well, we prayed for it, so why is God going to not want me to do it? Here's Maya. I saw, Maya, hey, do you get tired of seeing us yet? Oh, no, I never get tired. Oh, we're a... We're, we're, we're a Bible study group from our church. Guys, she gave her life to, no, I'm just joking. She didn't, change. but that's really all I started. But I thought, you know what, I'm there every week. I'm gonna see Maya every week. We're gonna see if we can make some kind of connection and see where the conversation goes. And I, I remember, I was just, as I walked, I was like, okay, God, like just that little bit kind of got me going again. He's like, Brian, nothing happened. Yes, it did. Like, don't sit there and go, nothing happened if you're doing nothing. Guys, I want to make sure that I'm trying to be as intentional as I can and in inviting and welcoming people in that maybe think completely different than I do and they see the world completely different than I do and they teach things that are completely different that I think goes against the scriptures. They live completely against the scriptures. Whether they're really nice and moral or not, guys, isn't that who Jesus came for? Isn't that who he welcomed in? So just ask yourself, think of your week. How much of it is isolated and insulated away from the ones who actually were welcomed in by the Savior who came for them? Powerful and humbling, right? To actually have to confess that to God? Guys, I don't feel ashamed by it. I feel freed. Confession is beautiful. Repentance is wonderful. I think the first reason that Jesus came was so that he could... He could identify with us as sinners. The second, not why he came, but why he's baptized. The second reason I think he's baptized, Jesus' baptism is a picture of salvation for the world. Let me read from Romans chapter 6, 3 to 11. I know it's a little bit long, but look on the screen. should be up there, starting verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, just so you understand, when Paul is saying this, he's, he's really talking to every believer. In his mind, he's thinking this. When a person comes to faith in Christ, the very next thing they're supposed to do is get baptized. Like, that's it. So when he, when he says, those of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, he's speaking to all followers of Christ. 
Those who been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, followers of Jesus, do you feel like you walk in newness of life? Do I? Family and I got to get away for a little bit last week, uh, and we drove the 261 back. I don't do a lot of driving because my, my office is like 20 feet from my bedroom. So I just walk there and do the work, and then we might have to drive here for a meeting here, and there I'll meet you somewhere. But I don't do a whole lot of, I don't know how some of you do it. The 261 is you're coming to the 91 in the afternoon, and those two lanes to go east, oh, I, if I could lose my salvation, I almost did. Like, I was so mad. Like, I'm in line, I'm in line waiting for those of you who, I don't know how you commute and still know the Lord, so I'm in line waiting, <laughs> and, I, and I should have gone to the, the, the more inner one, but I'm right here. And people just wait till they're just going, 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 and then they stop, and they want to cut in, and I say, no. This is not, this is not right. And then, so they start to go, and one dude did it, and guys, I got, can I confess? Man, the whole, I didn't hit them. <laughs> oh, I feel better about what I did, praise the Lord. <laughs> All I did was honk. <laughs> Who said, was that you, Chris? Who said that? Oh, Robert, Robert. Oh, my gosh. I never thought that I'd feel more righteous than Robert Red. I feel great about myself. <laughs> I laid on the horn, and he didn't care. It's like he didn't even look back. He didn't tell me I was number one. There's no reaction. Like, I didn't know. And then one after another just kept doing it and doing it. I was sitting there going, Oh my gosh, I'm losing patience. Guys, it did not, I did not experience this newness of life in that moment. Afterwards, this is what's going through my mind. I should have just been like, merge, everybody, come on, yeah, you too, come on. I don't, I'll just stop all the traffic. That's what I should have done. Isn't that what Jesus would have done? But I'm not. Guys, we had to get to VBS on time. There's my justification. <laughs> I didn't, do we experience this newness of life? Like, follower of Jesus, does your life feel any different than before you knew Christ? Do you find yourself more patient, more loving, more joyful? Is there this new outlook and perspective on life? Because there should be. That's what God wants us to experience. And there will be moments where we fall into that 261 mentality. When we run into cars. But friends, there should be this difference. When we said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into us and he changes us. He goes on, verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Followers of Jesus, that should be what our attitudes are towards sin. Not a flirting with, not a, well, this is what my group, this is what my tribe, this is what my group of people all believe, and it's outside of scripture. Whatever side you wanna go on the aisle, we believe this, and so you try to get Jesus on your side. It will justify actions or thoughts or behaviors, will justify it, all the while living in sin, yet feeling justified because you could say Jesus would have, and yet you can't back it up with what the scriptures teach about Jesus. I'm supposed to. Here's the, here's the beauty of baptism. Friends, it's not a requirement for salvation, but it is, it is a commandment of Jesus That when a person is baptized, the symbolism is you go under the water, you're dying to your old life, and when you come out, you're resurrected to new life. You're turning away from sin, you're running to Jesus. Can you see why Jesus would go, man, there is something to this. There's a what? Number three, Jesus' baptism is an example of obedience to his followers. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave the commandment. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. That word go, we think it's a command. We think it's a verb. Guys, that's not a verb. The only command and verb in the, in the Great Commission is make disciples. The word go, you say, oh, that's a verb. Guys, really what that word means, means this. In your coming and going, make disciples. And you're coming and going. So we sit and go, go, boom, get on a plane, take off. And if, that were, if that's where God's called you, beautiful, go. But how about this? Tomorrow, in your coming and going, make disciples. Wherever you go, make disciples. Ask, it kind of comes back to the question, God, who's the one? Who's the one today? Who's the one today? And you're coming and going, make disciples. And baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Guys, that, 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 does that sound anything like this? Hey, if you want to receive Christ and salvation, just raise your hand. Anything there sound like that? The Bible, if, if Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, that if, we, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word confess means to say something in such a way that your life will follow the declaration that you just gave. When you hear people say, just raise your hand, because that's not repentance. I can do that. I can do that. When Jesus says, I want you to go make disciples, and I want you to baptize them, they're going to die to their old way, they're gonna be resurrected to new life. They're going to be different. And you're gonna teach them to obey. And that's the process. That's making disciples, and it's something that we're all called to. Guys, to die to one's self-focus. This is why I believe the, to get baptized is to show a life of obedience to God, and this is what I think it means. To die to one's self-focused preferences in order to live in God's will for his glory. So my first response to anything that comes my way should not be, what do I want? It should be this, God, what do you want? What do you want? And I wish I were there. I wish I could say that that's my first response. It's not. I have to remind myself, it's not about me, not about me. God, what do you want? What do you want with this? What do you want? What do you want? And to continue to ask him that. Why? Because I died to myself, and I was resurrected to newness of life, and I followed Jesus. That's the difference. In Matthew 16, 24 to 25, 
Jesus said this, if anyone wants to follow me or follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. You want to be his follower? Deny yourself. Pick up a cross, that thing about death, and follow me. And the beauty of this is Jesus showed what this looked like by living it out. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, remember, it's not about us. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I wonder if there's anybody in the room needs to be reminded that you need to say those exact same words to yourself. I live by faith in the Son of God, catch it, who loved me. Do you believe it? He loved me. How do I know he loved me? He gave himself for me. Do you understand, though, that he still does love you? He enjoys you. God calls his people his treasured possession. And so we looked at Jesus' identification with us as sinners. Now we look at Jesus' identity, verses 16 and 17, Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Dang, that's an impressive baptism moment, don't you think? He goes, under the water, the Spirit of God descends looking like a dove. And then a voice from heaven speaks. Dang. Guys, this is a moment. The Spirit of God descended like a dove and rested on him. Where's this come from? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And yet I think there's two significant points that we're supposed to see in this, in what the Father says to Jesus and about Jesus. The first thing that he says about Jesus is this. This is my beloved son, meaning this. Jesus was the Messiah. Out of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, listen to this. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son, today I, today I have become your father. So what Matthew does is he connects it back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. That statement, this is my beloved son. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. Again, for those that you're going through it, you're wondering how are we going to get through it. You never imagined life would be like this at this moment. And for others of you, mountaintop experience. When I say, I never thought life could be like this, mountaintop experience people, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. The view's awesome. At some point, you'll come down. But right now, enjoy it. Those of you in the valley, isn't it amazing that one phrase can be said the exact same way but means something completely different? I never thought that life would be like this. And in both of those, or in all of those statements, depending on where you're saying those statements from, the motivation behind it, or the circumstances you're experiencing, let me remind you, the promised one came. The anointed one came. He came, and he fulfilled something. And that goes into the second thing that the Father said about Jesus. With him I am well pleased. And that points to the fact that Jesus was to suffer. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Guys, listen to this from Isaiah 42.1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. You can sit there and go, Brian, this says nothing about suffering. Yet, when you get to, the, when you get to Isaiah 
starting around Isaiah 42, you continue to move through. He's, inter- he's introducing his servant, and when you get to Isaiah 53, this same servant is known as the what? The suffering servant. That Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament's quote-unquote version of the gospel message of John 3.16. It's like, okay, so this suffering servant came, and who is this suffering servant? The Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, suffered, took our place to fulfill a purpose. And what was the purpose? That God so loved us that he came for us. He gave a son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. That was the heartbeat behind why God sent the Son. That's the heartbeat behind why the Holy Spirit has been given to us is because God so loves us. Why do you have to suffer though? Because of our sin, we have to face the judgment of God. We have to. And this is where people, a lot of people turn out on this point. They say, this doesn't point me to the love of God. Why not? Are you telling me that you don't want God to right the wrongs? Guys, do you realize that there are so many people in the world today that will never experience life like we do, that all they know is oppression and persecution. All they know is, quote, unquote, hell on earth. And so are you telling me that you don't want a righteous God to come and to right the wrong of that? I look and say, God, I want you to right the wrong. I want those who are oppressed to experience freedom and joy I want the oppressors to have to stand before you one day in my flesh to experience judgment, but then I know, God, I want them to experience the grace of God that they could repent and come to Christ. But you're telling me that there are people on the planet, millions or billions of people who are experiencing such hardship, and you don't think that God should come and right the wrong? Of course you do. You say, well, it's pretty drastic, don't you think? No joke, we were just talking about this in D group this morning. It's just kind of drastic. I mean, so you made a couple mistakes, and so God's going to like, he's going to judge you, and then you spend eternity in hell away from him. Like, don't you think that's a little severe? And the example was brought up. I didn't. They did. It was awesome. Friends, if I lie to you, okay. All right. I mean, what are you going to do? Be mad? But if I lie to a Supreme Court judge, isn't there greater judgment that comes from those who have greater authority? And so then if I sin and rebel against God, who has all authority, does it not then make sense to us that he will punish severely for any rebellion against him? It's right for him to do it. And he's righteous in that he does it. Say, well, where's the good news in that? The good news is that he came. And so I don't have to suffer. Jesus suffered in my place. The second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, came and took the penalty that I was supposed to pay. Guys, that's what makes grace truly amazing. That's what makes it absolutely breathtaking. So we see Jesus coming as the Messiah and the Father. This is my beloved Son, this is the promised one. Psalm 2-7 is, is, is now fulfilled. 
With whom I am well pleased, Jesus was to suffer, starting in Isaiah 42 all the way through 53, if not the rest of the book of Isaiah, talking about what this suffering servant did on our behalf. So how does all this play out? Because of our sin, the promised Messiah came, fulfilling God's promise. Guys, he didn't have to. He didn't have to. In God's righteousness, in his holiness, in his perfection, in his justice, he could have left us to ourselves. For we are all guilty, every single one of us. None of us can stand before God and go, I know I've done some mistakes, but look at the good stuff. Because all of the good things are like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. Do you see the impossibility of this? And it's not like I became a sinner when I sinned. No, 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 no. I was conceived into it. I was born into sin. So in other words, I'm completely helpless. And so because I'm completely helpless and can't make a decision for Jesus on my own, that the, Holy, that the, the Father has to draw me into relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit has to convict me of sin. And then God gives the faith necessary that I could actually turn my life and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. It begins with faith. It ends with faith. It begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. It's all about God. And when it's him, we look. He didn't have to, but he promised. Out of duty? No. Out of love? Because he's gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving and perfect and wonderful and beautiful, this God of the universe makes the promise and then fulfills it. And not only did he come, he came as a person and identified with us. For those who are terrified right now of something, Something's come up, news has hit you, something hasn't changed, you're terrified of what might happen. You have a God who relates. Jesus gets it. It's like, uh-uh. No, to be afraid is to sin. If that's the case, then Jesus sinned in the garden before he took the cross because he was so terrified of what was coming that he sweat drops of blood. The capillaries in his forehead burst and he sweat drops of blood, something called hematidrosis. He understands what it feels like. And yet he said this, not my will, your will be done. He made the decision that faith conquers fear. You may not always feel faith, but we can decide to live by faith rather than be driven by fear. Guys, for those, you just feel, oh, this temptation is hard. This is so hard. Brian, you don't understand how hard this is. Okay, maybe I don't understand that one, or maybe I do. Or maybe, I, maybe I'm tempted by something that you're not, and instead of me looking in judgment on those who are tempted by things that I'm not, I should look with compassion because I can relate with them because I'm tempted by other things that feel a little bit, quote, unquote, out of control. And yet I have a Jesus who sympathizes with me, for he has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Friends, it is so easy to go, man, I don't struggle with that. I can't believe those people struggle with that. Can you believe those people struggle with that? All the while, your hidden sin or acceptable sin is okay. But there's heinous, horrible. Guys, the fall of man came because they ate a piece of fruit. 
the heart behind it. It's rebellion against God. And when we start to look at, quote unquote, those people, I would never be like them. Oh, friends, you were dead just like them. Before Christ, you were dead in your sin. But God. When we forget those last two words, but God, that's why pride and arrogance is welling up inside of you rather than compassion and grace and mercy. That if Jesus didn't, con- he didn't come the first time to condemn the world, but to save it, if you find yourself condemning the world and not wanting to save it, you do not, oh, I'm say this, you do not have the heart of Jesus. He came as a person and identified with us. And not only did Jesus fulfill the promise of God by coming and identifying with us, he suffered for us so that we could live with him. He suffered for us and because of us so that we could live with him now and forever. Friends, heaven doesn't start when we die. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is is Jesus. It's him. It's the king. And we walk in fellowship with him in close in closeness that the disciples when they walked with Jesus didn't even they didn't get to experience this until after the holy spirit came we have the holy spirit in us do you think he gives us the holy spirit just so we can go through through some monotonous religious motions or do you actually think he gave us his holy spirit the third person the trinity god the holy spirit so we could love him walk with him be with him enjoy him and be enjoyed by him We just look at the gospel. Oh, man. Oh, I'm so thankful. Maybe God's answering my prayer this morning when I, I started with Maya. Who knows what I'm going to talk to later? I remember my first pastor, my first boss said this. Whenever you get bored with the gospel, you find yourself not passionate about sharing the faith, preach the gospel to yourself. Woo! Guys in his mid-80s now, still alive, sweetest southern draw when he preaches. <gasps> you can just, it's like molasses coming out of his mouth. Mine's not it's like a jackhammer, but his, smooth. He was right. Friends, if you find yourself bored with the gospel, you need to preach the gospel to yourself again. Then you can be reminded that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be reminded the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. All this because he loves us. All this because he wanted us. As the worship team comes back up, we finish with a couple things. David Platt, he wrote, he wrote this, he made this statement. He said, he who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. Whew. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, sinless lamb of God, took his place among the unrighteous, even though he had done nothing wrong. We see Jesus show up. He's baptized and have to be, identifies with us, presents or preaches this gospel message of what happens when a person dies to their sin and comes to resurrection or comes to Christ and gives an example to us as followers of Jesus of obedience to God. The Spirit descends on him. The Father speaks, this is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. This is the Messiah, the suffering servant who's come for a purpose. Why did he come? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me 
This, is, this would be pointing to Jesus. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the, to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Isn't it amazing that that's why, Je- that's why Jesus came? Aren't we supposed to be continuing his work as the church today? Like, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? Like, can't we be saying, the Lord has called me to bring good news to the poor? Or he's called us to bring good news. He has sent us to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Isn't that amazing that that's how Jesus came? That's what he came to do. Church, is that what we're known for? I was asked this morning, Brian, what can, what can we pray for you for? I said, I want to I be effective. I did. I said this. is in Corky's, in that side, the side booth that nobody ever sits in. I was like Fonzie's booth. So I was over there with the guys. It's like, what do you want? It's like, I want to see our church be just these passionate, driven, crazy, other mind disciples of Jesus. I didn't get that loud, but that's exactly what I said. Like, this is what I want. That this area would think that we're bonkers for the stuff that we believe, but they would be blown away by how we love. That we would live. We live in the dance of grace and truth and not try to live in one or the other because those are easy. But to be like this, to proclaim, that's not whisper. I want us to be like Jesus, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, because he's worth it. And he says that you're worth it as well. How do I know? Because he took a cross. Why did he come? Why did our king come? Because Jesus gets us and came to get us. Jesus gets us and came to get us. Church, we've been left with the exact same mission. May we not sin in our silence, and may we not sin in our complacency. May we be the church that Jesus has called us to be, and may we be the church the Holy Spirit has anointed us and empowered us to be. The king has come. The king is coming. Friends, we can do this. He's worth it. We have one last song together. Could we stand as they close us in prayer? But as I pray, if anything stands out to you, as I pray, just put your hands out to the side, palms up, saying, God, I'm saying, I'm saying this. This is my heart. Jesus, we thank you that you came the first time. We thank you that you're coming again. Oh, God, I can't wait, Jesus, to see you one day. I'm so excited. But until that day, Jesus, you've called us the church to be something, to be your hands, your feet, to proclaim your truth, to invite people into this grace that is so amazing. God, I'm so sorry that for the last couple weeks I found myself complacent and quiet. Oh, and God, I thank you that you've revived a heart in me. God, revive a heart in us. God, may we be known as that church. They believe that stuff. They believe that book. God, I pray that we're known for believing the book. Oh, but I pray, God, please fill us 
anoint us and appoint us that people would be blown away by the love of Jesus through us. God, forgive us for who we decide deserves your grace. God, none of us do. And may we be as gifting and loving and quote unquote irresponsible with the grace and mercy and the love of God that people would come to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. So God, we give ourselves to you once again. God, please, please, please use us. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Let's worship together.